This is GSAP Conversations from the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation at Columbia University in New York City. I'm Dina Malandraos. Thanks for listening. This is the second of a two-part podcast featuring the Chinese artist and activist Ai Weiwei. It was recorded on October 5th, 2017, when Columbia GSAP and the School of the Arts co-hosted a live conversation at Columbia's Miller Theatre in New York. I was joined by Carol Becker, Dean of the School of the Arts, and we spoke with Ai Weiwei on the occasion of his ambitious citywide installation, Good Fences Make Good Neighbors, organized by the Public Art Fund, as well as the release of his feature film, Human Flow. The discussion spanned many topics, including his thoughts on education, from his experience as a student in New York to being a teacher today, the way his work oscillates between art and architecture, and the role of the artist as an agent of social change. Thanks for listening. I want to go, I want to go back a little because this notion of action, like Hannah Arendt talks about speech as action, and it seems like what Amal was saying about architects, and I see it with young artists, that there's a new, a really a growing trend to want very much to work in the public sphere and to work in ways that would not have been traditionally thought of as an artist. And I, I was really taken with the story of what happened during the Sichuan earthquake for you and how, as an artist, you moved into a situation and actually took over a role that the government was not refusing to play, which was to articulate the names and the number of the children in particular that you became interested in who died from these faultily built buildings. And there were 5,335 children. And that you started this citizen investigation to find out the name of each of those children. And that seemed to be, at least looking at your life, it seemed to be a very important and very pivotal moment where things turned and your sense of your purposefulness also turned. But I, I would just love you to talk about that because there are a lot of young artists and architects in the room and the notion that artists could be useful in a different kind of way is very interesting to me. Yes, I think uh, it's all come from how you dealing with the so-called incident or event happened in your life. And now today's teaching is very much like, yes, uh, you have a good car and you drive on on highway, you're very fast and everything is uh, quite safe because you have a good car and you can reach the speed. And But you, you don't know by drawing that fast in this highway, you miss so much. Actually, you can see so much without having a car or without being in this highway. You know, life is not just to reach another point to go out because you, once you're on highway, you cannot even drive out. Next exit, the uh, exit will be very far. So I think this kind of design is really problematic. So since I never finished school, my life is full of the wonder and I always can decide what I will do next uh, tomorrow. Now I don't have this liberty because the next two months, my life is pretty much designed. I never experienced that way, but I have a lot of engagement. But very often, in the past 50-some years, I can do anything tomorrow if I want to, because I don't have any obligation or I don't have to do something, you know. So 
I don't know why I start to talk about this. <laughs> because I was asking about. Oh, the the the. the right. You know, but I. We could explain this piece, right? Yes, now. I first I get on internet. I have to give little explanation about this. How I I become like today. Um, by 2005, since I become a, a spokesperson for a new lifestyle, only because I built my building. So they said, oh, you have some kind of aesthetics we never know. So I really like to talk about those things. So, so people realize all those, that time China suddenly have 100 different kind of fashion magazines. So they, they all want to find someone can speak something which can catch the young people's mind. And nobody can, totally empty, because they all educate the same way. So I start to talk about my mind, my feelings, so they all feel something new in there. So I become very well-known in talking about architecture or interior design or lifestyle aesthetics in relating to those things. Then China, this internet just started. They said, we have to open a blog for you. It's like a blog for well-known individuals. But I feel very difficult because I never touched a computer or never know how to type. So uh, Sina, which is a Chinese company, said, uh, it's okay, we, we, we send assistant to you, you know, to help you to type. I'm a bit embarrassed, but I said, okay, you know, because I like to see what, what is possible. So at the beginning, I put a few words on computer and posted it. And I realized it's not so exciting, so I start to involve myself every day sitting in front of the computer to write some articles. So I just open a newspaper to find any topic. I have some, I, I have four of opinions or criticism, so I would write. So ended up by each day I would put like three articles on my internet. The next morning I would see my article being repasted or being people that retweeted like, like two, three hundred thousand times. So that really shocked me, you know, because this is a nation nobody ever experienced the freedom of speech. You know, there's no such a platform. And the internet can give me such a power. So for the next three years, I'm completely involved from 2005. 2008 is the time China had the Olympics, at the same time had this earthquake. So I, I thought if the government want to cover how many people are dead in the earthquake. I can't do it. I can't just do the investigation myself, and it's not going to be difficult. So I organized, I call it a citizen organization, uh, uh, investigations. And on the internet, we, we had uh, like 100 volunteers, young students. They, they don't know how dangerous that is going to be, and they got involved. So we went to this earthquake area, I teach them how to do investigation or to do research. So basically knock on the doors of all those people whose children lost their life in those villages and find about 5,000, over, a little bit over 5,000 names. But of course we get arrested about a few dozen times. The police were just erase all our findings or delete our photos and stuff like that. And ended up I also being beaten by, by police. And uh, so then 
I, I did a lot of writings and I also made a lot of artworks in re relating to this event. And this, this event I feel horribly uh, emotionally involved. And I think only when you are so involved, you forget about all your learning, and uh, which for me is very easy. I never had much learning. <laughs> and uh, I come out of works, which is quite powerful, like this work. It's called a street. It's from a one high school. It's called a Wenchuan Middle School, which this earthquake caused over 1,700 students disappeared under these rubbles. So how to do a work, I, I have no idea. You know, this is really very sad story. But after almost two years, I locate those you know, rebars, but it's all broken rebars, you know, very tasted. In those uh, local people reselling those rebars, they will break down those concrete and uh, take the rebars out. And you know, rebars is made of uh, metal, so it's you know you can selling maybe a few hundred dollars a ton. So, but by that time, I was my name is already very sensitive, so I have to use the uh, people from um, my studio, which you know is kind of hidden. The purpose we we bought all those rebars with uh, you know just pay more to those people and we shifting to Beijing and start to to straighten them one by one. It, it takes about a two hundred how the hammer to, to straighten one rebar. So this I don't know how many it's about one hundred fifty tons of rebar. So after two years they all being straightened. So it's, it's a form, you know, it doesn't really need much creativity. Itself buries a lot of meaning and, and the struggle. It has a strength in itself. So that's a photo in Brooklyn Museum. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but when you talk about, you know, it's the same with the laundromat projects where all the clothes that were left from the refugees were washed and ironed and this is in Deutsch Gallery. Mm -hmm. But there really is something so contemplative and so devoted by taking each piece and making each piece special. Like did those 200 hammerings, each piece. I mean, there's so much intensity and so much meaning in, in the action of the work, whether it's explicit or not explicit. And the more, I think we were reading about your life and your work, the more those layers of meaning re reveal themselves. Yeah, you make me thinking because very often the art school teaches students to be creative. So you see, everybody is so, so free to create whatever you like. But even when I was in Parsons, I realized, yes, you have all the freedom. But freedom doesn't mean you can make a good piece of art. You see the students from different schools in the mostly in the education, they are very much doing the same, the same. So I think that's kind of wrong notion to to just encourage people to be creative. Because how can you be creative if you don't have enough patience or enough understanding or to give enough attention to what is happening? You know, if you don't know the meaning of those things, and it's very hard to just encourage someone to be creative. Well, I think that purposefulness that you're describing, 
which gives real purpose to your work as an artist, as an architect, is what a lot of young artists, and I would, I would guess architects as well, are looking for. I see that in our students. They're looking for a sense of purposefulness. Yeah, but then you, you find we are living in such a peaceful time, and you know, we're all so spoiled. We couldn't really find a problem to, so we start to create a problem. You see, a lot, a lot of architecture practicing from the, the education, the artists trying to create a problem rather than to facing a problem. You know, that's very general in the, in the teaching and in practicing. And uh, which is quite sad, you know, it's really wasting time. You know. I think what's interesting, you know, one of the things that I love the most about being here and teaching here is actually that the diversity of our students in terms of their background and that, that exchange of experience. And, and I think that's making it harder to come as a teacher and say, this is what I know, because many of the students you know, have experiences that bring their own knowledge. And I think we have to change how we engage because we have to think across all these different experiences. And, but what you're pointing to is how important it is to have something very personal to, to kind of relate, to be able to kind of reach out and produce something that's meaningful beyond yourself. If school always repeating same language, that would be a problem because if you learn language, you, at least you have to know a few languages. Or even you pay attention to see what is the cat's language or dog's language, you know, to really have a much broader understanding about what language is about, you know. It's a tool, it's not a language just for, for making a beautiful sentence, but rather to communicate. So I think uh, that generally is missing in school because school is institutions, institutions always corrupted. So yeah, it's, it's by definition, all the institutions has uh, this potential to be corrupted. In, I'm, I'm not talking about uh, materially, uh, I think spiritually. So yeah, that's, it's, that's difficult because you need a school for mass education, but at the same time, you need a meaningful uh, teaching for someone who is so special, you know, to still have the character of being a human being or being a leader in, in relating to creativity. So this is a always difficult uh, balance. The knowledge and the character. Very often school only teaches knowledge but never really teaches character. And the character is not good words in, in school, you know, so. But maybe you cannot teach character. If I have a character, I will not sit in here for too long. <laughs> I, I think that authoritarian governments have a very difficult time with artists. And I have a whole list of reasons why. Artists stress the individual. They stand outside the mass. They create experiential experiences. They approach social issues in unexpected ways and they respond quickly, they don't ask permission, and they're irreverent. And so I was curious what you thought really gets to China in your practice, because you really get under this the skin. And, and you paid really dearly for it, and we're showing right now this piece, Sacred, which I think is one of your most amazing things that you've ever done. 
and this is seen in Venice, mm -hmm. and their depictions of the 81 days in detention. So I'm just curious, like you, in the provocation, what is it do you think that really... It comes uh, from very simple reason when I was released. My mom, my friends, uh, anybody or people loves me or, or doesn't really like me still want to hear what really happened in the, in the detention. And it's very hard to describe the situation. And uh, so I thought, okay, if you all need to ask this kind of question, maybe I make, a, you know, make up this condition. Because I, for 81 days, I was sitting there, nothing to do. I remember everything, you know, how many tails, each piece of tail, how large, and uh, what is the part in on it, you know. I remember everything because there's really nothing to do. You just have to sitting there. You're not allowed to do anything. So after I made this piece, the police who inter interrogated me come to see me said, it's not possible because we, we look at your piece and we examined the, the real room is exactly the same. So I told them, yes, you're dealing with an artist. <laughs> and uh, yeah, they, they are really shocked. They become much nicer to me because they think I have some kind of magic power can really get into that detention room again to also make measurement or everything is exactly the same. Because you're an architect then. Yes, I'm an architect. I even find the same tile from a very old market. I know they're only going to buy the chips of the tile. And that is from 1970s. They have some tiles left, so I made those patterns and, uh, you know, everything. Yeah, it's the same, so. Is it half scale? It's half scale. I want uh, people look at it uh, as uh, can examine it. It's more like uh, you have uh, some kind of superior in height to look at it. Yeah. Because you have to stand on these little boxes and you have to look in either from the top or the side, and it has this childlike feel and this horrifying content, <laughs> and that's why I think in part it's so successful. You know, it's a juxtaposition, and I, I don't know if there's another work where you appear quite so. Clearly, as in this, in, the subject is in this film, Human Flow, I appeared many times. Uh, uh, I really think you, you should watch this film. We, <laughs> I think we all, we all watch this film. <laughs> so we have some questions, if students. Yeah, yeah. With the rise of advanced surveillance globally, where will artists go to produce challenging politically and socially art? Huh. So with, with the rise of of advanced surveillance, which is the subject of, in particular, your Hansel and Gretel show, where will artists find the space to produce challenging art? I don't know why this is, uh, I mean, surveillance or no surveillance or some even possible new techniques appear. It's, it's about the gaming condition. So I think the artist always trying to find a way to, to be parallel of the given condition. So it doesn't matter whatever condition is giving, art always can survive and always can find its own way. And only that kind of art have a meaning because it can always find some kind of parallel condition in dealing with the reality. 
You know, when I heard that you were teaching at the University of the Arts in Berlin, I was somewhat jealous, I have to say, that you weren't with us. But now, having heard you talk about teaching, I think you might not want to be teaching a whole lot longer. But, but someone is asking from out there, if you were to develop a school, how would you go about it? A school? Yeah, if you were to develop a school for architects or for artists, or for artists and architects I, together. I think it would be so much meaningful to set up our learning process in dealing with the reality, you know, is to get close relations into the real problem rather to, to be, of course you need uh, some kind of theoretical study, but that has to be examined by the reality, you know. So I think uh, it's so, so much things need to be done in the real life, and uh, from cooking to, to, <laughs> to just repaint your wall or, you know. You know, this is just many things can bring us joy and uh, curiosity and passion. So without those, life would have no meaning. Doesn't matter what kind of status you have, you know, it's just no meaning. You can see so many people in very high position or can be called as architects or, or whatever, artists, or like me, you know, it's, it's so empty. So I have to sit here to talk to you and... Uh, well, we are, <laughs> we are really enjoying it. We're, we're, we're enjoying it, I hope it's you're true. enjoying it. How important to your work are organizations like the Public Art Fund? What benefits does the partnership offer to you as an artist in terms of that? Because that's another form of collaboration. In a way. My work is very much about a collaboration. And uh, it's not because I love those people, but because by working with people, you understand so much more, you know. You have to work with the city, you have to work with all kinds of restraints. And it's very, it's not easy to work with people. And to work with Public Art Fund, and they also challenged with this project to work with the city, with transportation, and with different bureaus, and the park. It's so complicated to, to build something in, in the public and projects always have to change its own way or to, and also uh, to, to deal with budget. It's a very big issue because, you know, you have to, all the large, this kind of large projects requires a lot of money. And uh, for the building, because you can sell in the building and, uh, you know, it's, uh, you have investor normally, but art, uh, which is very questionable if you um, can sell something, really just another person made it for its own, just, you know, it's not practical. So there's so much uh, problem, I, artists can never really solve it by himself. It has to depend on very devoted people who believe art can make some different uh, especially in today, you know, I, I'm always very lucky can be involved with uh, people who has a profound understanding. I thought that maybe I just thought that I would uh, read a little bit of the Robert Frost poem that mm -hmm. this comes from, Good sure. Fences Make Good Neighbors. That's nice. Maybe just a little homage to your father too, who uh -huh. was a great poet. And this is just four lines. Before I built a wall, I'd ask to know what I was walling in or walling out, and to whom I was like to give offense. 
Something there is that doesn't love a wall, that wants it down. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast was produced by Columbia GSAP in collaboration with Arc Daily. We launched a new series of podcasts called Constructing Practice, in which young architects from around the world speak about their motivations, challenges, and what it means to start a new practice in their respective context. Look for it on iTunes and find more information about the school on our website at arc.columbia.edu.